Okay, good, good. And um, if you think about it, godly people really do have an unlimited amount of potential uh, because God lives in them, right? So that makes sense. And so we started on Mother's Day. We looked at the power of a godly woman. And then we followed that up with looking at the power of godly youth. And then we, last Sunday, looked at the power of godly parents. And this morning, I want to talk about the power of a godly church. And I know that uh, this might sound strange to some of you because you assume that every church is a godly church. But that's actually not true. There's a big difference between a good church and a godly church. A good church does good things. Godly churches do powerful things. Um, You can't tell a godly church or a good church based on its size or its activities because uh, a good church can be large and a godly church can be small. A godly church is just simply marked by two things. It's marked by the presence of God and the power of God. So what two things mark a godly church? The See, I even alliterated it so it's easy to remember. Presence of God, the power of God, mark a godly church. It's like, what's the difference between this light bulb and all of those? Those are plugged in. They've got power, right? This does not. No matter how long it stays here, it's not going to light. It's got to be connected to a power source in order to light up. A good church can do a lot of good things and can look really good. But if it's not connected to the power of God, it doesn't do powerful things. The truth is that on the surface, like on the surface, just looking at it side by side, a godly church and a good church might even look the same. Because a church basically is just a On the surface, it's a volunteer organization, isn't it? You do a lot of good things. Uh, You serve the community. You volunteer at Bower's School. You show up at a block party once in a while. We serve ice cream and do food and that kind of thing. And on the surface, you say, wow, that's you're doing good things. But you know what? There are a lot of great organizations who do really good things. True? So what makes the difference between a good organization and a godly one. Well, God is the difference. So I have a question for us, New River Church. Do you want to be a good church or a godly one? I want you to know something. God loves his church. In Exodus or Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, it says this. It says, you yourselves, this is God speaking. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." I was a teenager. I remember when this Bible verse first hit me. Have you ever had that happen? You know, just... 
And I was a kid. I was a new believer, a new follower of Jesus Christ. And I remember this verse. The reason why this verse hit me was because of this. What stands out to me is this. God owns everything, right? Every galaxy in the universe is God's. Every planet is God's. Every star is God's. Everything on them is God's. It's all his. And it's as though God goes, although... Although the whole thing is mine, I'll trade it all to have you. That's just amazing to me. That God would, why would God seek to put his affection on a group of people like that? It's just, it's the mystery of the ages, honestly. And I know some of you Bible scholars You'll be like, well, okay, wait a second. But Exodus is God speaking to the people of Israel. So this applies only to the people of Israel because God's, you know, they are his chosen people, right? And you're right, they are, except this. The apostle Peter took the exact same words and he applied them to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, here's what it says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you see the same language? That's the only two times in the whole Bible when these words are put together, partnered like that. In other words, in other words, friends, God chose you too. You know, I over the years people get hung up on why God chose the Jewish people, and maybe you've been there too. I've had people ask me that question, and you know, over the years, what's so special about the Jewish people? Why did God choose the Jewish people? And my response is, well, what's so special about you? Because he chose you too. The the truth is, why would God choose any of us? (laughs) I mean, why would he choose to set his affection on a people? Why would he choose to pour out the blessings and the bounties of heaven upon any of us, right? And yet he does. And you read this, you hear these terms. You're You're a chosen people. You're a royal, you're royal royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God. Has, he has laid claim. He's like, you are mine. I'll, I'll let go of everything else that I own, all of it, the, all the galaxies, the whole unit. I'll let go of all of it if I could just call you mine, right? In other words, friends, there's a majesty. There's a There's a royalty to you. There's a a regalness to you that, oh, you just don't find anyplace else. You carry something really special. Holy nation, royal priesthood. And why? Why would God do such a thing? Well, he says it there, right? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. God has 
set his affection on a group of people called the church for a very specific reason, so that we would declare his praises. In other words, you and I are designed to be God's advertisement in the world, that, that we, we represent him. It's not singing his, declaring his praises is not just singing songs in church. Like, that's not exactly what it, although that's part of it, but that's not all of it at all. That's only scratching the surface. Declaring his praises is you, my friends, I are chosen to reflect God's goodness, to reflect God's greatness, and to reveal God's goodness. Did you say that with me? We're, we're, we are chosen to reflect God's greatness and to reveal God's goodness. You got that? We declare his praises in everything that we do. Our privilege is to show God to the world. And so this is why the church must demonstrate the power of God. Otherwise, we lack integrity. Right? We talk about a God who's powerful, but we look like everybody else. We talk about a God who's loving, and yet we struggle to get along. We uh, talk about a God who has unlimited resources, and yet our bills are piled up just like everybody else's. Where are we showing anything different? It's like this. If I said to you that I have a supernatural ability to play basketball, you would expect me to play better than anybody else, wouldn't you? And yet, if you see me down on the basketball court and I miss as many baskets as everybody else does, and I'm fumbling, and I, the ball's bouncing off my foot, and all of that, and you, you would have reason to question whether or not I have a supernatural ability to play basketball. In fact, you might even say I look foolish because I'm making a claim, I'm staking a claim that there's nothing to back up. Does that make sense? Right? So, that's... That's why the church, friends, either our God is all-powerful or he isn't. There's no middle ground in there. You see, we're supposed to, here's the question, what in us would cause anyone to want our God? And I'm, it kind of sounds negative. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just, it's, it's just a question, right? What in us would cause anyone to want our God? And so we've got to be a godly church because the presence and the power of God has to be evident or else there's nothing that we have of substance to offer to the world around us. There's nothing that sets us apart and makes us different. I want to take a look at a godly church in Acts chapter 2. So would you turn with me there? Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. This is one of my favorite passages of the Bible, so it's kind of fun to get to preach on it again. But Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It, uh, now here's the deal. This is the first church. I mean, literally first church. Like, I know every town has first church. This actually is the first church, right? So these guys are just a few weeks away from the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, as Elaine alluded in her prayer, today is Pentecost Sunday. And I have to confess, I forgot that. So, but on the liturgical calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday, which remembers and celebrates the day that 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1 happened. So you go to the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and you see what happened on Pentecost Sunday. You've got a group of believers. They're all together. They're, they're hanging out together. They're seeking God. They're praying together. And then God shows up in a really spectacular way. And they all begin to speak in tongues. And then a crowd gathers. you got a crowd coming around. And then the Apostle Peter stands up, the same guy that a few weeks earlier denies he even knows Jesus. The Apostle Peter gets up in front of this crowd and he preaches a sermon where basically he blames them for crucifying Jesus. I mean, if you read it, it's kind of a, he's like, you hung him on the cross. It's really interesting. So here's this guy. He's afraid one day and now he's right doing this. And then miraculously, 3,000 people decide to place their faith in Jesus Christ that day, and then they demonstrate that faith by being baptized on the exact same day, and that's the day that the church was born, right? And now you have in the days and weeks and months that followed that event, you have the book of Acts, actually the next several years that followed that event. But this is just I mean, the church is still green behind. She's wet behind the ears right here, right? This is fresh, new. And here's what they did. Acts chapter 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One of the things you got to say right off the bat is you notice what's not here. Notice that it doesn't say this was a perfect group of people. Catch that? So a godly church is not a perfect church. Let's dispel that myth right away. They were not perfect. I love what, um, I, read, I heard this quote last Sunday actually from another preacher that I listened to. He quoted Oscar Wilde. He said, Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. I love that quote. It just sums it up. Every saint has a past. No matter how holy and wonderful you are, you've got a past. And no matter how bad you are, you've got a future. Right? You know, in the church, we want to see people as God sees people. See people as God sees people. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we are loved. You're not perfect. But you are loved. We see you as God sees you. So this is not a perfect church. These guys don't have their act completely together. As a matter of fact, a couple of pages later, you find out that there's even some racial tension in the church. I mean, they've got their issues to deal with. But they're a godly church. And there were four things that they did that led to four things that they experienced. 
and I think it's really important they go together. We look at the first things that they did, and then we'll see the things that they experienced. And here's what I want to say to us. If you want what they experienced, you've got to do what they did. So look at the four things that they did. Verse 42, it has them all right there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to those four things. Okay, there's a difference between deciding to go on a diet and devoting myself to dieting. I can decide all day long and I won't lose a pound. It's only when I devote myself to dieting that I begin to lose weight. Does that make sense? These guys devoted themselves. I can decide. I can decide that this is the most important book ever. But until I devote myself to it, it does me no good. It's just a doorstop or something I put on my shelf. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, well, it became written down and it became what we call the New Testament. The New Testament books were all written by the apostles. So the apostles' teaching is the New Testament, right? But it's also the Old Testament because the apostles used their Bible to preach from and to teach from, which you and I would call that the Old Testament. So when we say the apostles' teaching, we're really referencing Scripture. So they devoted themselves to Scripture, They devoted themselves to it. I was really encouraged by our men yesterday morning in the men's breakfast. These guys were really the the theme, the thrust of our conversation yesterday was, was exactly this. We've got to take seriously the study of God's Word, memorizing it, making it a part of our day, making it a part of our lives if we want to succeed. And I love that. I'm encouraged by our guys striving to devote themselves to God's Word. Boyfriends, we've got to make it a priority. Hungry. You know, if I asked you how many of you feel like you should read the Bible more, every one of us would raise our hands. But that doesn't produce any results, does it? Because that's just religious shame. What we really need is a hunger for God's Word. You know, when you're hungry, you do something about it, right? You don't let anything stand in your way, man. You're going to meet that hunger. And so the real need here is not, oh, should I read the Bible more? Yeah, of course you should. That's religious shame, though. The real issue, friend, is I need a hunger for God's Word. And if I lack hunger for God's Word, there's only two ways that I know to solve that problem. One is, I ask God to give me a hunger for His Word. And He'll answer that prayer. He does. But secondly, I know that you've got to uh, kind of salt the oats, you know. You've got to, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You've got to begin to, you've got to begin to dabble. And I find a little bit makes me hungry for more. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. You see what their fellowship... Now listen, their fellowship was not donuts and coffee. Although I'm sure that if they could, they would have had them, right? But their fellowship was much more than that. Look at what their fellowship is. You see it in verse 44 and verse 45. 
all the believers, let me ask you something, we read this, wouldn't you like to be a part of this? I mean, let your imagination run with this, okay? This is cool. You see what these guys did? All the believers were together, and they had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone as he had need. You know, I got, I got, I've got a car I'm not using, why don't I give it to you? I've got a, you know, we've got, we've got two toasters, you need a toaster, hey, why don't you take my toaster? You've got, right, they're sharing their stuff, not only that, they're even selling it, saying, let's, I want to, you know, if you need something and I don't have it, let me sell mine to give you the cash for it. They're supporting each other that way. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, so that's a public place, and then privately, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they're meeting in one another's houses, ordering pizza, bagels and locks or something, whatever they ate then. They're ordering it. They're meeting together. They're breaking bread. They're having a good time. That's fellowship. They're fellowship, and they're sharing life together. Friends, uh, we have to um, <clears throat> fight with this, actually, in our own culture. Our culture is um, much more uh, divided than other cultures in the world. And, you know, we work in Nicaragua. They're much more community-based. We work in Kenya. They're a lot more community-based. They, they kind of do this stuff naturally. We as Americans, we actually have to make an effort at this, at inviting people into my home, at getting, at getting together outside of public meetings. We actually have to schedule it and, and make it happen because our lives just are not as enmeshed, I guess, as other cultures are, right? But that doesn't mean it can't be done. We can enjoy this kind of fellowship, friends, right? And then, third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. There's two different ways to look at the breaking of bread. Some people look at it as simple as they just ate together. They ordered a pizza, they ate it together. They broke bread together, right? And that's possible. I choose to think, I kind of think that it's the other. The second way to look at this is that it's really communion. It's what you and I, a a little bit of what you and I enjoy today. They celebrated communion together. They, They broke bread. In other words, you know, Here's what communion is, right? Communion is remembering the death, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. Communion is putting Jesus at the center, isn't it? Not, right? This is what binds us. This is the glue that draws us together. We have a common Savior. It's the gospel. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sin to make me right. I've received him as my Savior. His blood has washed me clean. His resurrection means I live again. They devoted themselves to that. It wasn't just a... In fact, you know that every Sunday in the first... About the first 100 years or more, 150 years, they called, they called Sunday Resurrection Day. Every single Sunday was Resurrection Day. Every single Sunday they met and they remembered the resurrection... They celebrated Easter every single Sunday. It's how they did it for the first 100, 150 years right? Because they wanted to keep the memory of what Jesus did for them alive. There's something to that. And then lastly, they devoted themselves to prayer. This is not just, uh, you know, the token prayer at the beginning of a meeting. This is, 
we're going to meet together and we're going to pray and we're going to, we're going to pray. We're not going to mess around. We're going to make prayer a discipline. It's a part of who we are as a church. It's, you know, um, I have a good friend and his name is uh, Abraham Rajan, Pastor Rajan pastors the Throne of Grace Church, and they meet here once a month. And uh, Pastor Rajan is an incredible uh, man of prayer. And matter of fact, the first time I met him, um, I prayed for him, and it was nice. He prayed for me, and the heavens opened up. And I was on my knees in tears, and I asked him, Pastor, would you please teach me how to pray? And so I've been taking prayer lessons from Pastor Rajan. And um, one of the things that Pastor Rajan says is you have to pay the price in prayer. And I think I know what he means by that. Every time I go to pray, there are at least five other things that I could be doing. Have you noticed that? There's always a reason why I can't pray in that moment. Always. I've always got a dozen different things going on, and I'm just too busy for that. I guarantee you, tonight we pray at Trinity Covenant. I guarantee you that you have about five other things that you really could be doing tonight that would be great excuses for why you can't make it tonight. But friends, we've got to be willing to pay the price in prayer. Without prayer, there is no power. You have no power without prayer, none whatsoever. Prayer is taking the light bulb and connecting it into the socket. That is what prayer is. Without it, friends, no power. In fact, our powerlessness reveals our prayerlessness. It's probably the one thing that just distinguishes a godly church more than any other is her commitment, literal commitment to move hell and earth and do whatever has to happen in order to make sure that we pray, that we get into the presence of God and pray. So this church does these four things. They devote themselves. Remember, they didn't just decide. They actually devoted themselves to it, to the study of God's Word. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to making sure they got in each other's houses, they, you know, and all that. They devoted themselves to the memory of what Jesus did, the, the message, the gospel message. Jesus died on the cross. They devoted themselves to that, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And then, amazingly, do you see what they experienced? They experienced the awe of God. I mean, these people, was, they, were, they were fired up. That's what that means. They, they were stoked, these guys. I think I would be too, wouldn't you? I mean, and then it says they experienced miracles and wonders and signs. Miracles are going on around them. I wonder if those two went together. I think if miracles were happening on a regular basis, we might experience more awe. I think they go hand in hand, don't they? But these guys, can you imagine? They're sitting at dinner, and this guy, you know, Fred over here, Fred was just dead last week. And now he's raised to the life, and he's right here at my table. I mean, that's going to change the conversation a little, right? Here's, here, here's Sally. She was blind. Now she can see. Whoa. Hey, we had this prayer meeting last night at, uh, you know, at Jim's house, and the whole foundation shook, like, right? That's, 
yeah, I think that might have contributed to the sense of awe that they were experiencing. And then on top of that, they experienced the favor of men. The, whole fa- the favor of men around them in the town, the city of Jerusalem. Word was starting to get out, wasn't it? There's something going on with that people. There is something happening there. And then lastly, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, I, I hear people talk about that, and, and some people like automatically, I, I believe, dismiss it by saying, well, you know, we live in such a wonderful time in church history. Thousands of people are getting saved every day around the world. Yeah, and that's true. That's awesome. Thank God for every soul. But I live here. I live here. I want it here. I have friends that don't know Jesus. I've buried people recently that I know are in hell. And I cry out. I say, God, here. I'm so glad for all that you're doing in Africa. That's great. But God, here. God, here. Lord, that's what I'm praying for. I believe with all my heart that if I want to, to experience these four things, then I must be committed to the first four things. And that a godly church experiences the presence of God and the power of God, but she does that only because her focus is on a devotion to Scripture, to fellowship, to Jesus, to prayer. She's devoted to those things. And then the presence of God and the power of God become evident. And as the presence and the power of God become evident, then stuff starts to move and shake. Right? (sighs) Yeah. And then suddenly it's not about our programs anymore, but it's about God. See? I I have an illustration for us, and I want to end with this. You might have wondered why there's a canoe on our platform. So I want you to imagine this, okay? Let me set the stage. So the world is the shore. It's the, it's the, the beach, the land. And then over here we have the ocean, okay? So imagine the ocean. And the ocean is God. The ocean represents God. And the canoe, it represents you and me. It's our lives. And... Uh, all of us start off on the shore. That's where we begin life, don't we? Nobody, nobody is born in a right relationship with God. Everybody is born away from God. That's where we all begin. So we all begin on land. But we all have the same destiny. We're all destined and created for God, are we not? And then the day comes... The day comes, so you start off, you're over here on the shore, you're just a boat stuck in the sand. And then the day comes when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you get put in the water, right? And you, and you start there, but you stay, you stay kind of along the shoreline and you think, man, this is great, like... This is what I was meant for. I was meant to float. Because floating is a whole lot better than being stuck on the sand. 
So this is, this is living right here. Whoo! But you see, I'm still close to shore. So I still kind of have the safety net there, right? I got my connections. Just in case the God thing doesn't work out, I got, I got the backup plan. And I'm paddling along, and then somewhere along the way, at some point, God says, you need to get away from the shore. You need to put out into the deeper water. And we might argue with him and wrestle with him a little bit, right? Because we go, God, I mean, that is dangerous. That, it's deep out there. I mean, what if a storm comes? What if something happens? I need to be able to. And so here's what we do. We compromise. So I say, okay, God, here, I'm going to put out, but I'm going to throw a rope. And I'm going to take my rope and I'm going to anchor it over here really good and tight. See, I'm going to anchor it to the world so that, so that just in case, just in case something bad happens, I can grab a hold of my rope and I can get myself back to shore, right? And so then I discover, wow, this is radical Christianity right here. I mean, I'm... It must be 20 feet deep. Look at that. It's incredible. And I'm, I mean, I'm living the dream right now. And I'm starting to paddle, and I'm just loving it. It's great. And then you know what I do? Is I discover other floaters. So other floaters start coming along, and they've got their boats tied to the shore too. And now we start floating clubs. And we talk about floating and we sing songs about floating. And we even have an expert floater who teaches us once a week on floating. And our, our expert floater, he's really awesome. He's written a couple of books and he's got a website. I mean, he really knows his stuff when it comes to floating. And so we're just floating along and we've, we're having a great time in our floating club. But we're all tied to the shore. And you know, every once in a while, we'll see somebody walking on the shore back over there and and all of us floaters will 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 yell at them hey hey why don't you be a floater too hey for god so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not sink but will be a floater like us and then we discover you know we find out they hardly ever join us Actually, what tends to happen is other floaters join us. They might leave a smaller floating club to join our floating club because our floating club offers floating classes even for kids, and they have a great time. Right? And so here we are. We're all just floating around together, and the people on the shore, they don't know anything about the one who created them destined them we've heard stories about people that cut the rope you know we read about them in books one guy one time a guy cut a rope and he floated all the way across the ocean and he told people in Africa about God that's radical there's other guys that are just really into it I mean they are way you can't even see them anymore they're so far out there and and we just 
I mean, there's no way, though, that could be us. <laughs> That's, that is entirely too threatening. So I'll, I'll just stay right here. Maybe I'll get a longer rope, but that's about as far as, as, far as I'm going to take it, right? Friends, at some point, you gotta, you got to cut the rope. We've got to cut the rope. And you know what you discover? That... God is actually who he says he is. You can trust him. You go through a few storms without the rope and you discover he's actually got this. Right? I discover that I was meant for more than floating. I was actually meant for sailing. And that's to be found out there. I, res- I realize floating is Oh, that's that's child's play. And you know what you discover after you do that? You'll find that more and more people on the shore actually want to put their boats in the water too. Because as long as we were staying along the shore, we were fools. They're mocking us. They're laughing at us. You dummy. You think you're... You think you're sailing. You think you're just floating and having a great... Oh, man, you think you're the hot stuff. You're just 20 feet from shore for crying out loud. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> you follow? You cut the rope? Allow God to take you out into the deep waters? And people on the shore begin to go like this. Oh, that's what God does. So, friends, as a church, we got to cut the rope. You know, uh, churches as a whole are just as guilty of keeping ourselves tied to the shore as we are as individuals. I mean, this message has an individual focus, but it also has a corporate focus, right? I mean, individually, we got to cut the rope. And be men and women of faith. We gotta start living like we're talking. Either my God is all powerful and I can trust Him, or He isn't. It's that simple. But as a church, we gotta do the same thing. And I love these people in Acts. They cut the rope, they were out there. The only thing they had was prayer. That was it. Friends, That's the place that Jesus is wanting to take us. Yeah. Yeah. Father, we want to thank you because you're faithful. And uh, you are who you say you are. You say you're trustworthy. And... You don't lie, and you've proven yourself time and time and time again that you're trustworthy, and yet we've continued to keep the rope connected. We ask you, Lord, please forgive us. Father, I want to abandon myself to you today. 
I decrease, you increase. I die to myself that, Jesus, you might be seen and you alone. And Lord, we don't want to just be a people that talk about how powerful you are. We want to be a people who actually live it. I thank you I thank you God this region has yet to see what it looks like when a group of people who have devoted themselves to you 100% begin to move and function in the region and Lord may we start that today we pray I would even be so bold as to ask that tonight when we gather for prayer at Trinity Covenant, that you shake the foundations. And we give you the glory, we give you the honor for it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand and, uh, and sing together as we close our service. And I want to open up the altar uh, just for ministry. Whatever's on your heart, what you need. Our prayer team would be happy to come and pray with you. If you don't want somebody to pray with you, you just want to kneel down at the altar. That's okay, too. We really want to uh, establish, you know, that this is the place where we meet God, right here. And so just come and pray and talk to the Lord as we close the service, okay?